Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. Thank you, Tina. And good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> That's not supposed to be till tomorrow, okay? Because we've been watching what we're going to watch tonight, right? Well, what a wonderful passage. Awesome. And uh, as I follow along in my Bible, I hope you're reminded, as I were, was reminded, that listening to that passage from God's Word just reminds us of what is really super important today. A lot of hype this week about Super Bowl. And uh, yes, it is Super Bowl 57. And uh, some of you know my evaluation of Super Bowl Sunday, okay? It's just, well, la-dee-da, okay? And uh, it's a a fun day, no doubt about that. But when you compare it to what Sunday is really all about, every Sunday is super for us who believe in Jesus, right? We are gathered here today because... Our Lord won the super victory, and we are alive in him, if we are believers in him, and we gather, we gather in his name and in his spirit, and I'm grateful to gather with you this morning, even just as I walked in, having, doing the welcome over in the other service, as I came in and you were singing, I literally could just sense in my own spirit the presence of the spirit of God as you were worshiping. I was so thankful for that. Well, today, Super Bowl 57, I want to call today our attention to Super Bowl 81, okay? Romans chapter 8, verse 1, if you'll turn there, you see what I did with that? Because that is the real victory. It is the victory that makes us more than conquerors through him that loved us. And that's what we're going going to discover and celebrate this morning, but also, Lord willing, the next uh, several Sundays as we are in Romans chapter 8, we celebrate the ultimate victory, the ultimate victory. Now, if you are a guest this morning, we've been in study through Romans. It's great letter that Paul wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote to the believers in Rome. And I don't know what the outline has been here. I know what my outlines and others' outlines have been, but I have an outline that runs through my mind as I think about the book of Romans, and especially as we've come this far. I'd like, if I could, just share it with you because I think it's important to remind ourselves where we've been so we understand where we are. Here's how I see it. I would call the first part of Romans, what a mess. What a mess. Chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 3, verse 20. What a mess we find out that sin has brought. What a mess in our lives. What a mess our lives are apart from the grace of God. What a mess, just deeper and deeper and darker away from God. But then beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 4, verse 25, what a message 
for this terrible mess, there is a message. It's the message of the gospel. The message that there is a righteousness. It's not our own. It's a righteousness that comes from God. Freely given to those who believe in Jesus. A righteousness by God's grace through faith alone. A free gift. Now that's good news. Wouldn't you agree? What a message. And out of that message, once you believe that message, then what a miracle. What a miracle. Chapters 5 through 8 remind us of what a miracle. The miracle of a new security. That's chapter 5. The new security, this grace in which we stand. The new miracle of a new identity. That's chapter 6. Who we are in Christ. Who we really are because of Christ. Our new identity. And then last week we saw that though we struggle, we have a new authority. A new authority in our life. And that is the authority of God that brings what we're going to be looking at here in chapter 8. A new liberty. A new liberty. Now that's how I've just outlined things so far. But this Sunday, next Sunday, we will break for a couple of Sundays because we have our global missions conference the last Sunday of February, the first Sunday of March. And that's going to be a wonderful week. But then that second Sunday in March will be the third as we'll focus on Romans chapter 8. And we're going to see what the Lord gives us in the Spirit. And so today we want to talk about life in the Spirit. Life in the Spirit. Now you'll notice something interesting if you read Romans carefully. In chapters 1 through 7, Paul only mentions the Holy Spirit three times. Three times in all of chapters 1 through chapter 7. But in chapter 8, Paul mentions the Holy Spirit 18 times. 18 times he mentions and helps us to understand the dimension of this new life that we really have in Christ. It is life in the Spirit. And so this morning, here's what I'd like us to consider. These three things that Paul shares with us about life in the Spirit in verses 1 through 11. We're going to look at the principles of life in the Spirit and the power of life in the Spirit and then as we close, we'll celebrate the wonderful promise of life in the Spirit. Now, in verses 1 through 4, Paul answers his own cry. Do you remember Paul's cry? It's the pitiful cry out of the depths of his heart as he struggles so with remaining sin. Verse 24, he says, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death, this dead body that I, who I am in Jesus, is chained to? And then Paul answers his own cry. Beginning in chapter 8, 
he thanks God that he has this deliverance through Jesus Christ, his Lord. And it's through the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's notice this victory that Paul announces. And listen, brothers and sisters, he doesn't announce it because he's the great apostle Paul. Because Paul did not earn this victory. This is the victory that belongs to every person in Jesus Christ. Regardless of how weak or how strong in the faith. This is not our victory. This is our victory in Christ, right? Now, what are the principles of this new life in Christ? The principles of this life in the Spirit. And there are four principles that are God's gift to every believer. God's gift to every believer. And Paul says they are what bring us this victory, this life in the Spirit. First of all, verse 1, there's the principle of justification. The principle of justification. What does Paul declare? Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, this is Paul affirming the great doctrine of justification. What is justification? Justification is what God declares about every person who believes in Jesus. He declares that because of Christ and because of faith in him, we are not guilty. We are not guilty. And if you're not guilty, then what? There is no condemnation. No condemnation. Now, this word condemnation is only used twice in the New Testament. The word here is katakrama. Katakrama. And listen carefully. It refers not to the announcing of the verdict. It refers to the penalty of the verdict. The giving of the sentence that must be paid. That's the katakrama. It's the penalty that goes with being found guilty. And Paul says, there is no penalty. There is no judgment ahead for those who are in Jesus Christ. Wonderful Irish preacher. His name was Marcus Rainsford. He lived in the 19th century. He said this. Here's a quote. Herein lies the great difference between an unbeliever out of Christ and a believer in Christ. The unbeliever has his judgment day before him. But the believer in Christ has his judgment day behind him. Isn't that great? For everyone who is not in Christ, there is the terrible, dreadful, awful day of judgment awaiting that person. And God forbid there would be someone here that would have that judgment day with God awaiting you. But if you are a believer in Jesus, 
There's not a judgment day ahead of you when a penalty will be announced on you. Why? Because judgment day is past. The judgment fell on Jesus. <laughs> Judgment's past. There is now no condemnation. And that word no there, oiden, means never, not a chance. <laughs> Won't happen is the idea. There will never, ever be condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our legal system has a principle based on this. It's called the principle of double jeopardy. Some of you might have thought that was just a round on a television game show. <laughs> but what's double jeopardy mean? It means that once you have been declared not guilty, you can never again be tried for that crime. Once you are declared not guilty, you are not guilty and you cannot be charged with that crime again. And that, my friends, is the wonderful truth of justification. When God says you're not guilty, you're not guilty. Who's going to charge you if God says you're not guilty? You may charge yourself. The some others may charge you. Even the devil may charge you. But there's no charge of judgment that will stick. Why? Because through Christ, God's already passed judgment on you. And that is you're not guilty. That's the wonderful reality. And so what comes with that principle of justification? Here's the second principle. The principle of liberation. The principle of liberation. Verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now notice two laws are contrasted here. Do you see that? There is the law of the spirit of life. And there is the law of sin and death. Now make sure you understand here. This reference to law doesn't mean God's law, his commandments. It means what Paul was talking about in the last part of chapter 7. It means there's no longer a principle, a power of condemnation in your life. You've been set free from that power or principle of sin. And you've been given a new power, a new principle. And what is it? The power and principle of life. The principle of sin and death. That's sin that produces death. That once reigned in us. Our sin brings spiritual death. But now in Christ, we have a new principle. By the Spirit of God, the principle of life in Christ. The greater power of life in Christ, has overcome the power of sin and death. Now, you know, as a human being, you cannot fly. I hope you know that. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend you try it, okay? However, many of us do fly. Just last week, uh, I and Jake and Joe, we 
flew to Dallas. <laughs> Terrible ice storm. I'd drive all the way back. But we flew to Dallas. Well, we, we can't fly. No, but through a plane, listen, through that jet plane, the law of aerodynamics is more powerful than the law of gravity. And this is exactly the idea here. The power of the Holy Spirit, the power of this new life in Christ is greater than the power of sin and death. God has given us new life, power that overcomes the old power of sin and death. We're liberated. We, we, are, we were like that caterpillar. It seemed like we were destined just to crawl along on branches and leaves. But then by this metamorphosis, this, this renewal that comes from the Holy Spirit, we are liberated to a new existence, a new sphere of life in the heavenlies, just as that butterfly is liberated to a new kind of life. So we, when we trust Jesus, His Spirit comes, gives us life, overcomes the power of sin and death, and we have a new life that we've entered into. Friend, I pray you know what I'm talking about. I hope you know what I'm talking about. Now here's the question. How does God do that? Or maybe here's the better question. On what basis does God do that? Friends, listen, I'm not reading fairy tales here. This is reality. Reality that's just made up in your mind is, is just a figment of your imagination. That's not what Paul's describing. He's describing reality. On what basis can God Almighty... Declare us not guilty, never to be condemned, and give us a new life of liberation. On what basis can he do that? Well, that's principle number three. Verses three and four, the principle of substitution. The principle of substitution. Listen to Paul. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Now, here in verse 3, listen carefully. In Romans 8, verse 3, Paul gives perhaps the clearest statement in the Scriptures that defines the heart of the gospel. Clearest statement in scripture that defines the heart of the gospel. It's the glorious work of Jesus in substitution for me and for you. It means Jesus took our place before the law. We were condemned by the law. We're all lawbreakers. We stand justly condemned. But Jesus took our place as our substitute before the law of God. 
meeting the law's demands. See, the law demands righteousness. But what can the law never deliver? Listen carefully. The law of God can never deliver righteousness. It demands righteousness because God is righteous. But it can never deliver righteousness. Why? Paul says, because it's weakened by the flesh. The problem's not with the law. The law is perfect. As God is perfect. The perfect standard. But the law of God cannot deliver our righteousness because it's weakened by us. We can't keep it. We can't keep it. And because we can't keep the law, the law can't help us. It's like I've said so often. It's, the law is like the, a mirror. You can look in the mirror and the mirror can tell you your face is dirty. But it is completely without ability to wash your face. Here's the gospel. Here's the good news. Listen, this is it. What the law could not do, God did. <laughs> what the law could not do, save guilty sinners, God did. God came himself. The lawgiver came. God himself, God Almighty, came as God the Son. And verse 3 God the Son came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Do you see that? It's very important. Notice Paul's words. He did not say he came in sinful flesh. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. That means the eternal Son of God. One member of the Trinity. The eternal Son became Jesus. He became like us, having a human body, having a body like ours, a nature like ours, yet without sin. Without sin. Why was it necessary for Jesus to be human, fully human, but not sinless. For this reason, he took the likeness of our flesh, becoming human, but without the corruption of sin, in order that he might die for sin. See that in verse 3? He became like us for sin. That means as an offering for sin, as a substitute for sin. For Jesus to save us, he, the eternal Son of God, became a man. He was born of a woman, born under the law. He fulfilled all the law's demands so that he could stand for us, for our sins. He lived for us. He lived the life we could not live. And he died the death that we deserve. This is the glorious gospel of substitution. Substitution for a purpose of what? Satisfying God's law. Our substitute 
to satisfy the demands of justice. This is what Isaiah sang about in his great prophecy. Do you remember it? Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace was laid. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's substitution. But then what was required? A substitute that satisfied God. And that's what Isaiah said in Isaiah 53 verse 10. That same passage. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. The Lord has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, God shall see and be satisfied. God's satisfied with Jesus. Remember what he said at Jesus' baptism? This is my beloved son and whom I'm well pleased. What did God say about his son Jesus on top of the Mount of Transfiguration? This is my son. You listen to him. And what did God say when he raised Jesus from the dead? Here's what he said. In effect, this is my son who has pleased me. He has accomplished what was necessary. I am completely satisfied in him. I raise him from the dead. And all who are satisfied in Jesus as a Savior, God is satisfied with your faith. But if your faith is in you plus Jesus, listen, my friend, God's not satisfied. If your faith is in Jesus and what you can do for Jesus, God's not satisfied. There's only one person who ever satisfied God, and that's our substitute, Jesus Christ. And when you trust Jesus as your substitute, your transgressions are placed on Him. Your iniquities are laid on Him. You have your sins borne away, and God sees the agony of Jesus for you, and He is satisfied. Oh, friend, what a Savior. Amen? What a Savior. God's justice fell on Him. The principle of justification brings the principle of liberation. And that is based on the principle of substitution. But it's not just words. It actually works in us. That's the principle of sanctification. The principle of sanctification. Look at verse 4. 
in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, listen carefully. We do not satisfy the law. Jesus satisfied the law. We are declared not guilty by trusting Him. We are given life. But friends, listen. When that life of God comes in you, your life is changed. Your life is changed. The power of the Spirit produces a new life in you. My friend, why? Because there's power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. It's not just words. It's reality. It's the power of the life of the Spirit. That's what I want you to notice next. The power, the transforming power, the mind-transforming power. Paul wants us to be very clear that there is a mind-transforming power in Christ. And that comes to us by this renewal of the Holy Spirit. And friends, let me tell you something. We need that mind renewal, don't we? <laughs> we need it. Now, Paul makes a clarification here. He wants to make sure we understand. There's only two conditions of human beings, ultimately, and two mindsets. There's really only two conditions of human beings with two mindsets. What are they? Verses 5 and 6. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, that is, in this new life, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, present tense. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, death but to set the mind on the spirit is, present tense, life and peace. Now notice, here's the two mindsets. Here's the two conditions. There's the mindset of the flesh and the mindset of the spirit. There is the unbeliever's mindset and there is the believer's mindset. One is set on the flesh. It has only to do with the things of this body, what we want in our minds, in our fallenness. And then there's this new mind, this new life focus that's in the spirit, what God wants, what he desires. There's the old nature. Who we were, B.C., before Christ. There's a new nature. We have a new identity, a new reality. Before, we were under the control of sin. And now, we're under the control of the Spirit. You see, friends, our mindset reveals our identity. Our mindset reveals our identity. What do I mean by mindset? Every single one of your thoughts? No, that's not what we're talking about. The patterns of your thoughts, the directions of your thoughts reflect your identity. 
The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 23, as a man thinks in his heart, what? So he is. Listen carefully. You may not be what you think you are, but what you think you are. You may not be what you think you are, but what you think you are. We do what we do because we think the way we think. And what we have to ask ourselves is why do I continue to think that way? Why am I thinking this way? Our mindset reveals our identity. Our mindset determines our destiny. Verse 6. Setting your mind on the flesh is death. But having your mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Is an interesting thing. A sailboat or a sailing ship can go in either direction based on the same wind. What makes the difference? How the sails are set. We live in this world, in, in this environment. Why do some in the same kind of environment head this way toward God? And other people turn this way toward selfishness and self-desires. Why? It's because how the sails are set in your soul. And friend, we can't change the setting of our sails, but praise God, He can. Amen? He can rearrange your sails so much so that the things you used to think were important, you don't think they're important at all. And the things that you used to go, oh, now you're so excited. You know, when I worked with teenagers years ago, and believe it or not, this old man was a youth pastor one day. So long ago, we used to have dinosaur races. Okay? You know what I looked for? I'd be looking as I was teaching my youth group on a regular basis. Generally taught to high school on Sunday mornings. There'd be 70 or 80. Middle school on Wednesday night. 50 or 60. Here's what I was looking for. While I was teaching, I knew to expect some of them like this. Sitting back on their shoulder blades like only a teenager can totally bored out of their gourd, and you could read their mind, are you about done yet, Pastor Sam? I mean, and then I'd have some kind of, you know, couldn't quite tell. But then, here's who I'm looking for. There'd be some of them, when I talk, they literally are leaning in. Their eyes are here, I open my Bible, they actually open theirs. They are literally, you could see them leaning in. And you know what I do? When I saw a teenager starting to lean in, that's when I'd go saying, the Lord's doing something there. Susan, something's going on there. 
Got to find out what that is. Why? Because they're interested in the things of God. They're leaning into it. My friend, you need to ask yourself, seriously, you take the seven days of your week, how much do you lean in to the things of God? Not whether you're perfect, you struggle, of course we're struggling. But are you interested in the things of God? Do you care about the kingdom advance? Does it make any difference to you, apart from this gathering, what is happening at this church? My friend, when the Holy Spirit is bringing life into you, you get interested in the things he gets interested in. What's the condemnation of the life set on the flesh? If your mind's set on the flesh, on selfish desires, if you are living your life based on what you want, there's two terrible realities about that kind of mindset. Paul says, number one, that's enmity with God. Verse 7. Notice. He says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not to submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. When a person is not pursuing God, it's not that they're saying, you know, I'm just neutral right now. You know, I just haven't decided about God and Jesus. Don't deceive yourself. You may think that way. That's not how God thinks. If we are not pursuing the Lord, we're not in neutrality. We're at enmity with God. And there's inability. There's nothing we can do to change our sails. I can't do anything. Verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, friends, I'm just reading the Bible here. And you may say, that sounds harsh. Well, I wouldn't describe it as harsh, but I'd say it's blunt, wouldn't you? They who are in the flesh cannot please God. What does that mean? Does that mean everybody who's not a believer is equally evil? No, that's not what it means. Here's what it means. Good deeds can never make up for continual defiance. You see, if I'm not bowing my knee to Jesus, that means I'm standing up. And if I'm standing up and I'm not bowing my knee, it's not neutrality, that's defiance. And good works can never make up for continual defiance. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say there's a man walking down the street here in Knoxville. Listen carefully. He has a revolver in his hand. It's loaded and it is cocked. He's walking down the street with a loaded weapon, cocked, carrying it in his hand. But at the same time, he's putting coins into people's parking meters because their time has expired. He's passing out a little candy. He's saying nice things, but he's walking down the street with a gun in his hand, cocked. What do you think's going to happen? 
Well, everybody's not going to say, well, look at him. He don't worry about him. He's putting coins in a... No. They're not going to say, no problem there. He's handing out candy. No. He's in violation of the law. You can give all the candy away you want. You can put all the coins in the meters you want. But walking around with a gun loaded, cocked, that's violation of the law. My friends, listen. Let's not deceive ourselves. Going to church on Sunday, doing some good, does not overcome continual defiance to Jesus as our Lord. We walk in condemnation. But if we believe in Jesus, here is the good news. The celebration. There's a celebration about the reality of a mind set on the Spirit. If you are a believer in Jesus, you can celebrate. Now listen this morning. If you know that your hope is in Christ, you can celebrate this morning. Why? Two reasons. Number one, the Spirit lives in you. (laughs) The Spirit lives in you. How do you know the Spirit lives in you? Because your hope is in Jesus. That's the reason you know the Spirit lives in you because your hope, your faith, your trust, your confidence, the desire of your life is toward Christ. That's the Spirit of God. Verse 9, you, however, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. You see, if you believe in Jesus, your body is a living temple. God no longer resides in buildings made with hands. He resides in the heart of every person who believes and trusts in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, the Spirit lives in you. But my friend, be very sure. Do you have the Spirit? Is there clear indication you have the Spirit? Because notice, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Celebration is this. The Spirit lives in you. But here's the other celebration. Not only the Spirit lives in you, but if you are a believer today, the Spirit gives life to you. The Spirit is constantly giving life. Life to you. Verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Friend, listen to me. When you trusted Jesus as your Savior, your body didn't get saved. Not yet. And praise God, it's only not yet because there's a new body. One day at resurrection for those who believe in Jesus. But when you trusted Christ, you did not get a new body. Still the old body. Flesh is flesh. And that's all it's ever going to be until Jesus comes back. But your spirit, the real you. The real you. 
is alive with life from the Spirit. You're alive, and now you have a living promise. What is the promise? The promise of life in the Spirit. The promise of life in the Spirit is this. Verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is dwelling in you, then this is absolutely certain. He, God, who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. What did Jesus say? Because I live, you will what? Live also. I am the resurrection and the life. And if you believe you're already alive, but you have this old dead body, not just your flesh, but this mind that still is corrupted by sin. But one day, when Christ returns, you will be, have a, this new spirit in a brand new body. A brand new addition. You know, one of our founding fathers in this country was Benjamin Franklin. He loved to listen to gospel preachers. In particular, he loved Whitfield, the great preacher. Whether he was a believer or not, I don't know. He wasn't clear in that testimony. But here is what Benjamin Franklin had written on his tombstone. He demanded this word for word be written on his tombstone as his epitaph. And I have seen it in Philadelphia. You can go see it. Here's what he wrote. The body of Benjamin Franklin, printer. Like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding lies here. Yet, the work itself shall not be lost. For it will, as he believes, appear once more in a new and more beautiful edition, corrected and amended by the author. <laughs> now, friend, that's true of us. We need a brand new edition of our life. That edition has begun in Jesus, but it will be a brand new complete edition one day. Resurrection Day requires a birthday. You must be born again. Next Sunday is my birthday, and I want you to take note of it. <laughs> Next Sunday's my birthday, but listen to me. Listen. Today's my spiritual birthday. 49 years ago this evening, under deep conviction for my sin, I dropped next to my bed that Sunday night, and I cried out to the Lord to be merciful to me. The biggest hypocrite in the youth group at our church. 
And the Lord heard my prayer. He came into my life. He radically began to change my life. My girlfriend, Susan, a couple weeks later went to our youth pastor's wife and said, whatever he got is what I need. Because our, year, our yearbook would not, and it does not say in it, about me, most likely to be ordained. I was not that kind of guy. But the Lord did something in my life, and I have failed him so. I have not lived up to my own expectations, let alone his. But the Lord Jesus gripped my heart 49 years ago, and it lasted this very moment. I love him, and I am a great sinner, but my Savior is a great, great Savior. And he's worthy of your life. He's worthy. And the best life is a life of following King Jesus. Amen? That's a super life. Let's bow our heads. The team's going to come. And I thank you for your attention. But dear friend, please, I ask you, carefully, carefully consider Is your mindset one that is focused on Jesus? Or would you have to be honest and say, you know, Jesus isn't the focus of my life. And I'm greatly concerned. Well, friend, I want you to hear this wonderful news. You're not nearly as concerned about yourself as Jesus is. He loved you so before you were born. He came. He fulfilled the law for you. He took your place. He lived the life you could not live, though you needed to live it. He died the death you deserve to die. Friend, the only life is life in the Spirit. The only life worth living is life following Jesus. As we sing to our King this morning, Come to him right now. That's right. Talk to him right now. Call upon him. He's near to those who call upon him. Call upon him. Trust him. Ask him for life. Ask him for a fresh move of his spirit. He will respond. Now, Lord... I pray by your spirit, do what only you can do. No words of mine can do anything. But your word is like a hammer that shatters the rock. It will not return empty. It will accomplish the purpose. And Lord, for your purposes this morning, may your word be powerful by the spirit. May people come to life right now. And may those who've drifted away from the joy of following Jesus come back and know the incredible, amazing privilege of knowing and serving Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing right now. We ask in Jesus' name.
Amen.